0: Good afternoon, everybody. We're returning from the break now. I'm uh, again one of the co moderators, Jeff Lennox, and it's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Meredith Clement from the uh, LSU, who's an expert in sexually transmitted disease prevention and treatment. And she's going to talk to us today about treatment and management of sexually transmitted infections. Dr. Clement.
1: Hi. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm honored to be here. Uh just the, just wanted to mention one thing. So, um throughout the talk, I will try to use the term sexually transmitted infections. Um this is the term that's uh going to be used with the new 2021 STI treatment guidelines that should be out in the very near future, uh, and the the reasoning or the rationale um, related to this is that STI, um, referring to the organism um, that's sexually transmitted, is thought to be a more inclusive term relative to STD, uh, which refers to the disease state. Um, so, really, just less stigmatizing and and kind of places the emphasis on treating asymptomatic infection, which is. Um, one of the goals of our treatment. So um, moving forward, here are my disclosures. Um, and then just to provide a brief outline, I'll go over some epidemiology, uh, particularly that just recently reported earlier this month from the CDC on STI rates in 2019 um, and a brief briefly touch on what we know about 2020. Uh, then I will review the impact of the pandemic on COVID-19, I'm sorry, the COVID-19 pandemic on STI control, and then provide some updates on STI prevention and treatment. And so the objectives of this talk, um, hopefully, after listening, learners will be able to kind of more comprehensively and thoughtfully consider management of STIs um, and treatment in the pandemic era, also weigh the risks and benefits of antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, And then, finally, describe the new updates to CDC-guided treatment for gonorrhea. And so, just to kind of jump right in with the EPI overview. So, again, earlier this month, um, the CDC released um, a report kind of covering um, 2019 data for gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. And so what this uh, figure shows is that for the sixth straight year, um, rates have increased. And so uh, breaking new records and records, where we really don't um, want to break, um, but so that we're approaching 2.6 million cases, um, for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. Here you can see, um, the actual numbers, and I just wanted to draw special attention to congenital syphilis here, um, Oops, almost 2,000 cases reported in 2019, uh, and you can see, um, that represents almost a quadrupling in number of cases from 2015. Uh, so really thinking kind of, uh, trying to emphasize here the importance of screening and, and paying attention to the guidelines in terms of screening, um, and, uh, that, uh, you know, really, um, screening in the third trimester recommendations are based on, um, kind of local prevalence data as well as maternal risk factors. So here is 2020 data. Um, I will emphasize that this is not official. Um, these are not official numbers, but this slide was presented at the National STD Prevention Conference back in September of 2020. Um, so kind of drawing, drawing your attention to here to the early months of 2020 when rates um, we're exceeding what we saw in 2019 for primary and secondary syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia. Uh, and then you can see in March as the nation um, came under stay at home orders or was under lockdown, kind of this plummeting. Um, of cases and then now this gradual um, increase in, in cases over time over the rest of 2020. And so I think it sort of remains to be seen whether this decline in cases is related um, to uh, the the lockdown and sexual distancing practices versus um, the clinic closures that were happening. And so that kind of segues us into thinking about the pandemic and, and the impact it's had on STI control. Um, so to say that the pandemic has had, um, has been detrimental to efforts to fight the STI, to fight STIs is, is probably an understatement. Um, so really we had a public health crisis in STI rates, um, prior to COVID-19. So if you think about the 2019 data I just presented, um, really just, um, a, a public health crisis and and then add to that on top of on top of that a pandemic um and it's which has really exacerbated things um so sci clinics have faced kind of Things any clinics have have with clinic closures, PPE shortages, modified hours, um, kind of this transition to telehealth. Uh, But on top of that, you have um, the folks in the STI field who actually have experience and expertise um, in contact tracing and disease intervention services. And so there's been a, a lot of redeployment. Um, of STI personnel um, to fight the COVID pandemic. And so um, they've done uh, national surveys to kind of think about STI programs and the impact on resources. And um, in 2020, 87% of programs um, were reported that they were involved in the, their city or state's co- uh, COVID-19 contact tracing. Um, more recently, so they kind of repeated this these surveys over time, um, currently 37% are reporting um, that their staff have been redeployed to the COVID-19 response. And that's actually, um, a decrease from, from kind of 2020 when as many as 78% of staff were redeployed to the response. And then many programs are also reporting interference with STD control. Um, so reduced disease intervention services, and these are the folks who are in charge of um, tracking down cases and and partners and administering treatment in the field, Um, and so those services have been reduced for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. Um, and, and so just another challenge I wanted to highlight briefly is shortages. Many people on, um, in this course may have heard of these or may, maybe have, um, seen these firsthand, unfortunately. Um, but shortages, I tried to be alliterative here, but related to staffing supplies and solutions. So the staffing I, I just kind of touched on in the last slide. Um, but staffing shortages involved um, in kind of the testing and contact tracing um, that I just showed, but also now with a vaccine administration and distribution, you have um, jurisdictions utilizing uh, DIS or disease intervention services um, for vaccines too. So 29% um, of jurisdictions now uh, utilizing DIS for vaccines and 8% More will be very soon. Um, Many of you also may be aware of these CLIA, of uh, uh, the shortages related to supplies and and swabs. So 35% of CLIA certified labs as of January are reporting supply shortages, and that's actually um, down a lot from where it was earlier in the pandemic, as I'll show on the next slide. Um, and then molecular testing machines have been diverted to COVID uh, testing, and then also just p- personnel within micro labs as well. Um, and then finally, azithromycin shortages earlier in the pandemic when it was either being used to treat um, COVID-19 or, or um, concern for concomitant community-acquired pneumonia, um, there were shortages. And then um, also suffix and gent were reported to have shortages as well related to um, supply chain and distribution. And so here is where uh, we were in January, um, 35% of, of labs reporting testing supplies, but actually that's a huge improvement from um, where we were in the latter portions of 2020. So, so how do we overcome these COVID-19 challenges? And I think one of the most important things that clinics can do is to really, um, work on efforts, kind of doubling down on their efforts to remain open, um, and, but not without precautions. So symptom screening has been employed, uh, limiting hours, eliminating walk-ins, um, all, all these things to kind of, um, place this continued emphasis on, uh, remaining open, um, so that screening and, and treatment can continue to happen. Uh, some clinics, unfortunately, have had to defer routine screening visits. Um, and, but hopefully that's in order to prioritize those who report symptoms or who report being contacts of STIs or individuals at high risk of infection. And and those individuals would include pregnant women, um, women with symptoms of pelvic inflammatory disease, or um, those with symptoms concerning uh, for neurosyphilis. And then finally, um, I just wanted to touch on express visits. So if you look kind of down here, this reference is a Dear Colleague letter um, from April of 2020 last year. So the CDC has released a series of Dear Colleague letters um, that that guide clinics and how to continue to provide STI care. During the pandemic and one suggestion is these visits where um, testing and treatment occurs without an exam and the idea is that the clinics that remain open um, really can ramp up uh, testing and treatment or the number of patients they're able to see and that kind of compensates for these other clinics that are uh, forced to close. Um, so, uh, one other, uh, or I just want to touch on the other, um, kind of, uh, suggestions from the CDC from these dear colleague letters, um, which is syndromic management. Uh, so this table over here, you're not really intended to read this fine print, um, but just to show that this, uh, table exists on the CDC website. Um, and in cases where, uh, clinics are not open for treatment, um, they, uh, or sorry, for injections, they can, um, kind of utilize these alternative strategies. Um, but really the CDC has encouraged clinics that, that aren't open for, for treatment to partner with other local clinics or pharmacies for injections. And then really the oral treatments offered here are a last resort when injections aren't feasible. So moving on to STI prevention um, and current and potential future methods. Um, So here I'm just touching on some of the current prevention strategies we have in our wheelhouse and, and some of the future strategies we may have. Um, so condoms, kind of an age-old strategy uh, that have been used both to prevent STIs and pregnancy. Uh, behavioral interventions have been used in the past with some success, uh, either to, um, to uh, encourage condom use, reduce number of sexual partners. Um, or, or, or influence, otherwise influence sexual activity. Uh, Expedited partner therapy, I'll cover in a second. There are also some newer partner services that kind of involve um, apps or other online resources. Uh, test and treat, um, which I really look at as a community-level prevention strategy. Um, so, home testing and rapid diagnostics, which encourage um, earlier treatment, testing and treatment, and and therefore stop ongoing transmission. And then finally, I'm I'm going to talk for a few minutes about vaccines and antibiotic prophylaxis. Um, so, here EPT um, or or expedited. partner therapy. Um, this is the practice of treating, uh, the sexual partners of your contacts. And, um, so the, and people may be familiar with this strategy, but it's providing medications or prescriptions to the client in front of you. And then they in turn provide those to their partners. Um, and the idea is that you reduce reinfection rates. Um, and subsequent adverse uh, health outcomes. And so it's important, I think, to keep in mind um, that EPT should really be viewed as a harm reduction strategy, uh, and so really limited to situations in which a partner would not otherwise receive timely treatment. Um, but I will say it has uh, been studied um, and it has been shown to be safe and effective for gonorrhea and chlamydia, um, the, uh, EPT, um, was, uh, was suggested or, or encouraged kind of last year in the pandemic by the CDC as a strategy, um, to use for treatment of sex partners. Um, but they did release a clarification memo, um, uh, back in May, uh, to really discourage its use in the setting of syphilis. So syphilis is just, Complex, as many of us know, um, it does require laboratory tests to confirm diagnosis and then follow response to therapy. And so currently the CDC does not recommend the use of EPT for management of sex partners or individuals um, diagnosed with syphilis. And then, um, home testing can be looked at as another prevention strategy, uh, in our wheelhouse currently. And I think it has increased in popularity during pandemic times. So mailing mail in testing kits are available, um, generally thought to be reliable. Uh, there was a Cochrane Review that was published in 2015 uh, that looked at clients um, who had participated in these programs, and they they really liked them. They said they preferred the simplicity, security, and privacy of self-collected specimens, and they reported decreased fear and anxiety um, that can sometimes be associated with in-person um, STI uh, screening and, and treatment visits. And so the CDC mentions in particular, I think as an example, molecular testing labs, which is based out of. Vancouver Washington it's a CLIA licensed laboratory um, the test kits can be ordered by physicians, uh, they're covered by most insurances. Um, but this is just an example, so I would encourage people who are interested in pursuing this further just to, to review this um, technical assistance brief um, that's available online kind of as a more comprehensive, offering more comprehensive coverage of the um, self-collection testing kits that are out there. And so here, this map um, is published by NASDAD, and so these are the states in red here that offer free in-home testing kits. And um, this includes those um, testing kits that are offered in partnership with uh, an organization called BHOC, so Building Healthy Online Communities. Um, and so uh, BHOC has partnered with Emory and NASDAQ um, and then also local and state health departments to offer these um, free t- testing kits. So unfortunately, my state over here is gray, but if you live in a red state, you might be in luck in helping your patient get um, some at-home testing for STIs. And then now, uh, because no talk is Ripley without a mention of condoms, so again, condoms as our age-old strategy to prevent pregnancy and STIs, um, but with limited, I think, overall impact in the long term. So this statement from the National Academy of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine I don't need to read the whole thing, but they say it's clear, however, the condom promotion alone has um not been sufficient uh in really preventing scis and and based on the data I showed at the beginning, you know the this epidemic's only getting worse, and so what are some alternative strategies we can? um think about study and, and maybe employ in the future so um this study is a little bit older it's coming from lancet in 2017 um but it looked it was a retrospective case control study kind of looking at their mass um vaccination campaign um with the group b meningococcal vaccine and so here this is just showing kind of the proportion of of their um population that had been vaccinated based on year of birth. And then um, the actual study involved considering cases those with a, a gonorrhea infection and controls those with a chlamydia infection. And what they found is that um, individuals who had received um, the meninge B vaccine uh, were significantly less likely to be cases, so acquire gonorrhea, uh, than controls. And then when they did some adjusted analyses, what they found um, was the vaccine uh, efficacy against gonorrhea was was at 31%. And so I'll I'll talk more about that in just a second. Um, but in the, but also want to mention antibiotic prophylaxis. Uh, so this study also published or published in Lancet ID, uh, in 2018, um, looked at the open label extension of EPRGA, which many of you probably know is a HIV PrEP study, um, but it, it was an open-label extension that looked at um, doxycycline for post-exposure prophylaxis, or PEP, um, as a sub-study. And so it was a randomized uh, open-label extension. Um, patients were randomized either to on-demand PEP with doxy or no PEP. It was 232 participants, and they were followed for about nine months. And um, what the analyses revealed was that um, the occurrence of the first episode of syphilis or chlamydia and then really all STIs um, was lower in this group that received pep. Um, relative to the no PEP group, and then as you might expect, based on the background kind of resistance, uh, tetracycline resistance rates for gonorrhea, um, there was no difference here. And I will add that uh, it was generally thought to be doxy was generally thought to be um, safe as well, although there was a, a, a increased risk of um, GI adverse events in the doxy PEP group. And so, kind of this makes the case for ongoing um study, and so um the sub substudy is ongoing in France currently. So this is an open label prospective cohort study. Um, it's a an interesting factorial design. Um, so it's looking at both the meningitis vaccine that I talked about a couple of slides ago and Doxy Pep, um, the randomization. So it's it's taking um those who were participants in the in the PrEP study and then um randomizing two to one to I apologize here to DoxyPep or no PEP and then randomizing one to one to the meningitis B or or no meningitis B vaccine, and looking at STI incidence over time. And and Dr. Molina just uh, did. Uh, provide me with an update that they, you know, the start of enrollment was very significantly delayed, but they have enrolled about 100 out of the 700 people, um, participants. And and they are doing um, studies of the microbiome and, and looking at um, resistance based on um, cultures and molecular methods as well. And so here is another open-label study that's ongoing to look at DOXYPEP to reduce STIs in MSM and uh, transgender women. So this study will enroll. It's taking place in Seattle and San Francisco here in the United States, And it will enroll 780 participants, 390, uh, with HIV, 390 without. It's two to one randomization, doxy pep or no pep, um, and we'll look at incidence of gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. And then similarly, uh, they're doing, um, uh, looking at resistance via culture and molecular methods. Um, they will do stool samples in a, in a, select number of participants to look at the microbiome, and then um, adherence testing to, uh, with uh, hair levels of tetracycline. And so um, just to kind of reflect on all these studies that are being done, uh, this um figure was taken from a review that was published in clinical infectious diseases back in twenty nineteen. um, but just kind of considering the risks and benefits of of sti uh, prophylaxis um with the use of of doxycycline. Um so there are implications, I think, for resistance. We do have to consider what changes will take place in the microbiome. Um, also to be considered, I think not likely, not lightly is side effects and safety. And so, um, you know, doxycycline is routinely used for malaria prophylaxis and also for acne generally con- considered to be safe. Um, but I think not without, uh, side effects completely. Um, there are probably going to be studies ongoing to look at the cost and cost effectiveness, effectiveness, and then finally risk compensation, which as many of us know, has been a, uh, issue of great, um, consternation, um, rightly or not, but within, uh, prep studies. Um, and so I, I think my, my thought on doxyprophylaxis right now is kind of a don't try this at home, um, approach until we have more data. And it sounds like at least with the Seattle San Francisco study, we, we can anticipate results, um, in, in the coming years, likely in 2023. And so now, um, I just want to close talking about STI treatment, uh, for a minute and this update to the CDC treatment guidelines for gonococcus that were, um, released uh December 18th of 2020. So the punchline here is that there's a recommendation in, um to increase the dose of ceftriaxone and then also um in cases when chlamydia co-infection has not been excluded to administer doxycycline rather than azithromycin. And so just to talk through um some of the rationale uh, for this, for just a second. So, what's important for um, antibiotic efficacy when it comes to gonorrhea is the time that the serum free drug con- concentration remains higher than the organism's MIC. And so, here you have uh, that this dose five. Milligram per kilogram, kind of being the minimum um, level of of drug that that meets this criteria. And so, put another way, here's five milligrams per kilogram, um, and the time that it, it remains in this uh, therapeutic um, duration for for um, for serum free drug concentration above the MIC is about 24 hours. Uh, and then here, um, and, and by the way, these are all murine models. This is kind of the best uh, we have at this point in time, but this article is was re- um, referenced in that update as kind of helping to form the basis for these new recommendations. And then here you have, again, um, 5 milligrams being the minimum um, dose that was associated with clearance of the organism at 48 hours post-treatment. And so if you think about 5 milligrams per kilogram and what that means for an actual dose of sat- and for the average American, um, it's gonna be more uh, like five hundred milligrams rather than two hundred and fifty. So it's just kind of become clear to us, I think, that that the 250 dose did not 250 milligram dose did not um kind of reliably achieve um, what was needed in terms, in terms of pharmacokinetics, uh, to clear gonorrhea. And then here is really the, a figure that shows why azithromycin has come out of favor. So in 2012, um, ceftriaxone and, so, uh, cefixime was no longer recommended and ceftriaxone and azithromycin, um, were recommended as, as the first line treatment and And you know, despite this kind of um, paradigm of doing dual therapy um, to reduce resistance, what we've actually seen is an increase um, in the percentage of isolates that have um, that are are not considered. Um, to be uh, fully susceptible to azithromycin um, over time. So currently, we're looking at around uh, 5% of isolates with reduced susceptibility to azithromycin. So um, that kind of makes up the recommendation for um, this transition to use doxycycline instead, um, or, or sorry, to use really ceftraxin monotherapy um, without uh, azithromycin. And so then now I just want to specifically cover uh, what the CDC is recommending. Um for uh, uncomplicated gonococcal infections. So when it's a cervical infection, urethral or rectal, um, the new recommendation is 500 milligrams ceftriaxone as a single intramuscular dose for those weighing less than 150 kilograms. If they weigh more than that, um, you would administer one gram of ceftriaxone, And then um, in cases where chlamydia has not been excluded, treat with doxy 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days unless the patient is pregnant in which case you would still use azithromycin to treat chlamydia, and then here are the alternative regimens. Excuse me. So it's gentamicin two hundred and forty milligrams as a single IM dose with azithromycin two grams orally, and then the if if must be used, uh, the recommendation now is that we that the dose be increased from four hundred to eight hundred milligrams um as a single oral dose. And then again um with cefixime, use doxy hundred milligrams Twice a day for seven days when chlamydia has not been excluded, unless the client is pregnant and then still use azithro. And then, um, just to touch on, uh, specifically pharyngeal gonococcal infections, because sometimes these can give us the most trouble. Uh, so the, the recommendations here are similar. So 500, uh, as a single IM dose, unless the patient weighs more than 150 kilograms, in which case you use a gram and then, uh, get use doxy unless the patient's pregnant, when chlamydia is not excluded. And then here, um, just to kind of highlight the things that are specific to pharyngeal infections per the new guidelines, No reliable alternative treatments are available. If there's a reported beta-lactam allergy, conduct a thorough assessment, um, because I think as most of us know, um, these penicillin allergies from childhood, a lot of times um, don't pan out um, when allergy testing takes place. And then if anaphylaxis or severe reaction, um, consult infectious diseases. And then finally, um, in cases of pharyngeal infection, a test of cure is recommended at seven to 14 days. Um, and so that, I think, closes out um, my slides. And um, I don't know where exactly we are for time, but we can um, move into question and answer if that works.
0: Yes, uh, thank you, Meredith. The, there's several questions, a um, couple related to the doxycycline recommendation. Obviously the trade-off is that you're not witnessing people taking the doxycycline. So if you have severe concerns about adherence, is azithromycin still acceptable?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, it, in cases where um, you are questioning the reliability of the the patient to take seven days of doxycycline, then the CDC is recommending um, that we that you use one gram of azithromycin, and that can be given as, as directly observed therapy.
0: And then, how long should people be sexually abstinent after being treated for GC or chlamydia, as far as transmission? Yeah.
1: The recommendation is still a week.
0: Still a week, okay. And a couple of questions. Um, one from Africa Alvarez was about the quadrivalent meningococcus versus the men min uh the meningococcal B uh, monovalent that was the data it was based on. Do we yeah, know anything? The-
1: well all the data is to support um the uh group B um, and so Bexero, and I didn't um, think I had time, but I realized I sort of flew through my slides. <laughs> so the data um, is to support group B um, meningococcal vaccine, and that's, you know, based on that data from New Zealand and other studies. Um, and so what is going on right now is a, a large randomized clinical trial um, that I believe, and Dr. Sag maybe can comment, but I, I think the PI is Dr. Morazzo at UAB, but LSU is actually a site for that study too. Um, so looking at administration of, of the group B vexero vaccine um, to prevent uh, gonorrhea infection in those not previously vaccinated who are at a reasonable risk of, of gonorrhea acquisition.
0: And for the expedited partner therapy, if the partner is a woman of childbearing potential, do you give the partner a Zithro for the woman or Doxy since you're not going to be doing pregnancy testing?
1: Yeah, so it's the recommendation, um, is, uh, so first of all, you might consider that that patient should be seen in clinic if pregnancy hasn't been ruled out and there are concerns of, of infection. Um, but yeah, you could do azithromycin if, if they're childbearing potential. I, I think there's kind of this gray area in, in interpretation there, at least the way our clinic is going to implement it is, um, if the woman is of childbearing potential and pregnancy has not been excluded, then we'll still be using azithromycin.
0: Okay. And regarding the test of cure that you just went over, uh, Stefan Roniak had a question about, you know, if the nucleus, I, I mean, if the NAT is still positive, do we know that that's not cured? you know, if you're testing seven days after treatment, you might just be finding dead DNA, right?
1: right. right? So you've got still persistent organism, but maybe dead. Um, so the ideal testing time is probably closer to 10 to 14 days. I think if you are, if if your test is still positive, you have a serious conversation with the patient about whether they abstain, could have been reinfected, has, has, have the patient's partners been treated. Um, but if you're, if you're all, if you're pretty certain that there's been good adherence um, to your provided recommendations, I think it's it's reasonable to retest again. You know, if you test at 10 days, test again at 14 to 21 days. Um but certainly because pharyngeal infections are notoriously harder to clear and harder to treat, um, you know, you wanna have a high index of suspicion um, that there may be some treatment failure going on
0: and there are several questions about doxycycline so could you just summarize why this shift away from azithromycin?
1: Sure. So a couple of reasons and what I, what I uh also can do and I don't know if this could be sent to participants but if you if you look on the CDC website there's actually um a link to a webinar that happened in December it's about a 2 hour webinar with uh, Gail Bull and Kim Warkowski, uh, and, and Laura Bachman. Um, but it goes over all the, the changes that we are going to anticipate. With the 2021, um, CDC treatment guidelines. So those haven't been released yet. So I didn't kind of carefully review those for this talk. Um, but I think it is interesting to kind of get a heads up and what to anticipate. And they very carefully go over the reasoning for the switch to doxycycline. So, but just to hit the highlights, it's, it's sort of two, two fold with the reasoning. Um, so one gonorrhea, we're seeing increased rates of azithro-reduced azithro, um, susceptibility. So we no longer want to use azithromycin in the setting of gonorrhea. We're going to increase the dose of ceftraxone, provide monotherapy, and think that that's sufficient um, with a test of cure in certain situations. In the case of chlamydia, what will be recommended, unless the patient is pregnant or there are concerns about um, you know, kind of their reliability in treatment adherence, um, is to no longer use a gram of azithromycin, but instead to use doxycycline, um, for two weeks. And, and so in this webinar, they go into this in great detail. And again, I would encourage, uh, participants to, to watch or to listen to, um, the, the webinar. Uh, but, But the the concern really is the recent data related to rectal chlamydia, Um, and there's Julia Jombrowski at UW has published this RCT recently, and I want to say that um, it was the clearance of rectal chlamydia with with azithromycin was about 74%. Versus 100% with doxycycline. So there's just a big concern lately that azithromycin is not sufficient for rectal chlamydia. And, you know, whether patients are truly having rectal sex or not, or whether they're telling us they are or not, we know um, that they, they can test positive. Um, despite kind of what they're doing or what they're saying, if only because of auto-inoculation. And so the the idea is that really a, a longer course of doxycycline um, is needed uh, to treat rectal chlamydia in the case of, of any chlamydia, diagnosed chlamydia infection. So that was the long-winded answer.
0: Okay. And, you know, there's a lot of questions and I think we're going to have to refer people to the STD treatment guidelines and to that webinar, but One quick one that I think you can answer very fast. Is there any need for abstinence after treatment for syphilis?
1: For abstinence for syphilis. We still recommend seven to 21 days for our patients. Um, So yes, I do do think that it's appropriate.
0: Okay, thanks. I'll turn it over to Dr. Sag to introduce our next speaker. Thank you very much, Dr. Clement. Thank you. Thanks so much. And the only thing I kept thinking about is we're talking about the the dosage increasing for um, ceftriaxone is that at some point we're going to run out of real estate, you know, especially if people are getting cabotegravir. So we'll have to deal with that at some point.